they become just as involved and then the pipeline starts spiraling out of effect we don't have mentors in our schools male role models are not in our schools sometimes the platforms that we're using to teach those kids are not even a good platform for those kids to learn on some cases our kids are still learning off of chalkboards when they should be they, they should be on some type of digital platform or, or smart board or something we have to look at ways of overhauling our educational system but be intentional with those kids that we've been losing in the gaps across our nation. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, school disciplinary policies often disproportionately affect black students. Black students are suspended or expelled at three times the rate of white students and are three times more likely to enter the juvenile justice system. How can we hold students accountable for their actions and still provide support in the ways that they need? What are some successful prevention approaches for keeping students out of the criminal justice system? And how can we holistically reintegrate students that are currently in the juvenile justice system? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Tony Loudon to find out. Tony Loudon is a vice president at Viapath Technologies, an organization dedicated to breaking the cycle of incarceration. Loudon has more than 20 years of experience on the local, state, and national levels, assisting criminal justice-involved individuals with opportunities for successful outcomes. In 2020, Loudon was appointed by the White House to be the executive director of the Federal Interagency Council on Crime Prevention and Improving Reentry. He is also the pastor for former President and First Lady Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Today, he is here to talk to us about the school-to-prison pipeline and what schools can do to keep students out of the criminal justice system. Tony, welcome to the show. Well, it's good being here, Kevin. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. So I've been a long admirer of your work, and we're going to talk about the whole uh, school to prison pipeline, incarceration, reentry. Uh, this has become your career, part of your career. But also, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, at least remind our, our listeners and viewers that you were one heck of an athlete, a great baseball player. Talk about how you, you know, that career and then what led you to this community minded work that you're engaged in now. Well, you know, Kevin, just like a lot of kids growing up in the inner cities, you know, sometimes sports is the way to avoid gangs and drugs. And I, yeah. I played just about every sport I could play, you know, to try to get out of uh, North Philadelphia. And I was blessed to be able to be good at chasing that baseball down uh, in the outfield and playing third base. And so I love the sport. I still love it to this day. It allowed me to be able to leave North Philadelphia and go out to the West Coast and get a good education at USC. And it's been a blessing to be a part of um, something I think that shaped me. But more importantly, it, it made me competitive in everything I do. And so, you know, from prison reform, reentry, helping kids, education, charter schools, I'm competitive with that and always trying to win to make sure I change people's lives. Now, let me ask you this. When you were, I mean, you played with the L.A. Dodgers, you had this career in baseball where you were uh, one of the best in the world, because if you make it to that level, you're one of the best in the world. Did you, so many athletes 
really are in the moment to the point where they don't think about post-athletic career. Did you always know you wanted to go back and, and be involved in community engagement? I've always had this sense because I've always asked myself, why? Why are things the way that they are? And when I no longer could chase the ball down when I hurt my knee, um, it forced me into what I studied in school. And so uh, studying government and economics allowed me to go back to try to be a, a servant leader, um, mm. to go back and see uh, the things that, that upset me mentally and physically, uh, the conditions of communities and children across the nation. It forced me to be able to go back and work in that space, working for Willie Brown at the time in, in California, and then you know leaving that position after six years and going to run the Republican caucus after that, uh, it gave me this, the view of both sides and how we can change communities. And, and I've been bit by that bug ever since, you know, I, w- I want to be able to leave a legacy of serving so that my daughter can have a legacy of serving as well. And um, I do want to talk about your uh, path to the ministry. How did that take place? Well, well, Kevin, you know, I've always been this kid who loved God in ways that I knew it was nobody but God that got me out of the inner cities. And so I tell everyone that I grew up in this here, what I call the, the young people call it the trap house. And mm. the OGs like you and I, we call it the speakeasy or the bootleg house. <laughs> but I grew up in that house and I was the, as, as a lot of children are to today, was the slave of that house. It was my job to come home from school or practice to clean up that house, clean up the vomit, clean up the ashtrays and needles. In some case, um, even clean up my own mom's vomit because she ran the trap house. Um, and sometimes when I was late coming home from school, uh, my mom and that dysfunctionality would beat me with a braided extension cord, not because I was a bad kid, all because I was late to, for doing my job. Um, but I had an aunt that said, if you come to church, I'll bake you a banana pudding. And every every Sunday I went to church chasing that banana pudding, chasing to be able to sit there in her living room and watch sports, watch the Phillies or watch the Eagles or watch the 76ers play. And every Sunday that I went to church, it pulled me in farther and farther with a relationship with Christ. And that has been the major foundation of my life that given me this space to want to serve. So in part, uh, that work led you to uh, the criminal justice system and some of the challenges to see in, in incarcerate the incarceration of our youth. And there's some real disparities. If you are a uh, young man of color, particularly African-American, but any young man of color, and you come from a a low-income, socioeconomic, uh, working-class environment, then you have a significant chance of being swept up in the system. And in fact, uh, this this whole school-to-prison pipeline, this is why you and I, we've talked a lot about the need to have education in place in a really meaningful way in these communities, because if you don't, then that alternative often is incarceration. So talk to me about the beginnings of that pipeline and, and, and what you have seen, which helped lead you to this work. Well, you know, in, in my neighborhood where I grew up in North Philadelphia, you know, majority of the men and women in my family, 
and especially those that I grew up with at my age, uh, was just as involved, ended up in and out of prisons. Same thing happened to my uncles and my cousins and everybody. And I was determined to break that cycle. But when I look back at the system as whole and traveled across the country, it's, it's in every community, especially now metropolitan cities. Um, and now we're starting to see a great increase in rural communities, where the rural communities are starting to look like yes. the inner city communities. We're also starting to see that um, some of the same failing pipelines to prisons have been failing our children for 10, 15, 20 years in a row. And so when you see the elementary school failing and when that kid moves to the uh, middle school, that school is failing. Nine times out of 10, they're not going to make it through the high school without being justice involved as well. And so we're seeing this, these numbers, this tidal wave of kids that are now entering our systems across the country. So, Tony, talk a little bit about the in-school suspension phenomenon and how this impacts the incarceration rate. Well, Kevin, that is a huge question. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't really address that issue enough. So when a kid end up with in-school suspension or end up in alternative school, most of the time those in-school suspension units or halls or classrooms that they're in or alternative schools, it almost looked like the prisons for DJJ, Department of Juvenile Justice. And so even when a kid goes to Department of Juvenile Justice, he may be there for six months, he end up coming right back to in-school suspension or alternative schools before he's introduced back into the general population. And so what we have here, we have a growing influx of kids. So when you and I was growing up in school, if we pushed each other or something like that, we probably would get a paddle during that time, but we wouldn't catch a case. Now our children, our youth are actually catching cases where they end up with the DA and they end up going to uh, Department of Juvenile Justice for a while, or they become justice involved. And then the pipeline starts spiraling out of effect. We don't have mentors in our schools. Male role models are not in our schools. Sometimes the platforms that we're using to teach those kids are not even a good platform for those kids to learn on. Some cases, our kids are still learning off of chalkboards when they should be they, they should be on some type of digital platform or, or smart board or something. We have to look at ways of overhauling our educational system, but be intentional with those kids that we've been losing in the gaps across our nation. And also this sort of uh, criminality that exists in the mindset of some teachers, uh, some teachers who are young, uh, they may not, they may be young uh, white women who aren't used to dealing with young boys uh, who come from certain backgrounds, boys of color. Um, and, and I think that schools need to do a better job of training and preparing uh, those those teachers. Uh, but we've seen the, the, it's the criminal aspect of uh, of how we discipline these young boys. We, we've all seen the visuals of five year old boy being led away in handcuffs in a police car. Uh, and I'm struck by the fact that. Uh, you know, Atlanta Public Schools Chief uh, Applin talked about this idea of policing in schools. We need they need to be able to to almost uh, go through an additional training to leave that warrior mindset, that SWAT team mindset. And interestingly, he led a SWAT team unit to a guardian mindset. 
Absolutely, Kevin. Let's let's look at my case, for example. Uh, I grew up in a single parent home. I never knew my father. Um, my mother was very dysfunctional and dysfunctional to me and beat me with a braided extension cord where I grew up in filth uh, with a very dysfunctional home. I grew up resenting that. When I went to school, the people that educated me were, were women. And sometimes we see these young uh, African-American boys or young men, young boys of color, they grow up in a household where they don't have a father. They don't have a mentor. No one's giving them a rite of passage into manhood. They go to school. And then there's oftentimes a white woman is trying to raise them, teach them, discipline them. And they end up acting out. They don't know what it's like to be a man. And so there's no, there's no, uh, uh, sense of belonging in these schools and there's a big culture gap. And so when you get me involved with the police, I'm acting out as well because I don't know him. And nine times out of 10, the policeman that is uh, watching over me in school, nine times out of 10, he's white. And so when we look at this, it's, 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 a, it's a void, if you will. We got to look at ways of being able to put people in these classrooms and and in these schools and leadership that looks like the kids and, and understand the community that these kids are coming from because these kids are coming from broken homes. Majority of their parents are in and out of prisons. My wife and I, we open up a nonprofit. We've been running it for 25 years of kids whose parents are incarcerated here in the Macon Bibb County area. Majority of these kids that we have, we see most of them have come from single parent homes where the fathers or the mothers are not there or they've been raised by Nana or grandma or pop pop. We got to look at ways of doing things differently. The police that are in our schools. And we know that in some cases we have schools where you have to have police there because of people bringing in guns into the schools, but they have to go through a whole different training where there has to be a mentor and getting to know those kids, getting to know the community. It almost that we have to have community policing inside the school so that yeah. these officers know what it takes, where these kids are coming from for the communities. And then the kids will get to know them. Uh, and you'll be surprised of this, what I call cross-pollination, that will bring that community and that school together that'll make this place a better place for learning. I also think that we gotta look at ways of getting our historical black colleges involved, a place where there are uh, growing teachers. We gotta look at ways of bringing them into our schools. I don't think we have to wait till they graduate from the school. There needs to be what I call a pipeline when they get on a job training where they're going to get their degree, but they're also working in the schools at the same time. We can do that. We've done it with our military. We should be to do that with our, our teachers as well. And we got to look at ways of bringing what I call non-certified teachers into the classroom to help. And that's why I love charter schools. I think you can look at ways of bringing in people with professional skills, engineers, um, uh, people who have worked in uh, fields in the military, people that have retired to come in and help these kids. There's a void, there's a teacher's void, there's a teacher's shortage, there's a community shortage. And when you have all those things, you have a dysfunctional community. And one of the things that sort of compounds this is, I mean, it'd be one thing if, if we were talking about one generation, but then there are uh, multiple generations, you know, 
parents, grandparents, great-grandparents who went through some of the same challenges. And you've talked about breaking the generational curse. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that, um, Kevin, is that we've seen decades and decades of, of failure in our systems. You can There's a direct correlation from failing schools to our prison pipelines. We have to find ways of changing that trajectory of our children. We can't keep up with the numbers. Every state across the nation is looking for answers. And usually those answers are, how do we fix our failing schools? And how do we stop men and women from going in and out of our prisons? We got to raise our expectation of what we get out of our educational system. We got to demand a spirit of excellence in every way. And it's, it's not a knock on public schools or charter schools or private schools. It's just saying that our future has to be that we look for excellence so that men and women don't end up in our prison. 76, 76% of the men and women that are in our prisons don't have a high school diploma. So now we have to pay over again once they get in and find ways to get them their education so they can come back out to be a successful citizen. We should do that on the front end, not the back end. One big part of the solution uh, has to be the counseling and mental health services in a stepped up way in our schools. You know, the, we, we, we've been medicating our children like crazy in our, in our communities. And we have not done a good job of coming with interventions before that or dealing with the trauma in those, that these kids are going through in those communities. We have not put enough resources with counselors inside our, our, our communities and our schools as well. We have to deal with the trauma and the mental health. We got to look at ways of being honest with ourselves and say, we have to step in and do everything we can on a holistic approach when it comes to having a place called our educational systems where counselors have to be there, mentors have to be there, professional teachers, as well as non-professional teachers to help make the whole system work together. We just don't put a gasoline in a car and think that that car is going to make it every day. Somebody has to change all every now and then. Someone's going to have to change the filter every now and then. Now, Tony, talk about uh, those adults who are in the system uh, and the work that you've been doing, especially as you integrate, you know, additional education, because many of these these young young men who are in prison uh, are high school dropouts, and and also the career readiness programs, so that they develop the skills to get out and be productive members of society. Kevin, it's the most important work that we can do right now. You know, we have over two million people in our prisons across the nation. 78 million people in our nation have felonies or have either been in and out of prisons or either on probation some kind of way. Career readiness, we have a nation right now where people are just not working like they want used to. Um, employers are having a hard time finding people to work. We got to look at ways of saying, how do we educate them? You know, th th my new career with Viapath, it gives me an opportunity to build a a a website where there's no interruption to services. So what a person's learning behind the walls of a prison, they can continue that once they get out. We should not just give up on men and women in our prisons. If we're going to call ourselves Department of Corrections, then we need to find ways of correcting individuals' behavior so that we send them back to their children better than they came in. 
that we send them back to our communities to be productive members in our society. We can do that if we're intentional, intentional with the education platforms, intentional with organizing everyone. I want to say that that probably the most important piece of this whole reintegration has to start the moment that a, a youth is just as involved. And it starts by the judges and the folks, probation folks are working hand in hand to make sure that there's no interruptions of services for that child's education. Because the moment they get behind bars, it takes on a whole different culture. We got to look at ways of saying this child, whatever work he was doing prior to him coming into the prison, it continues when he goes to the prison. But more importantly, there should be a smooth transition for them coming back in. And then we surround them with the other, what I call ancillary services, a mentor, a counseling, a person who's going to help them reintegrate back into the school. I think we need to do away with alternative education. Because if you take a child, you have him just as involved, and then you bring them back to what they call alternative education, that looks just like the prison. The only thing, there's no bars and there's no barbed wire. Look at ways of being able to reintegrate that child truly back in society. But more importantly, keep the, the, the guardrails up so that he don't fall out of the bed anymore. Keep those guardrails up so that he can actually have a mentor who can kept guide him through the process before he's released back into the community. Keep those counselors side by side with him so that his case plan, we give adults case plans. A juvenile should have a case plan as well. When to report, when I go to my mentor, when things are due, teaching him that discipline to enter back into society. We need that more than we've ever needed before. If not, those children are released back into our communities. They're released back into the streets. They have no incentive, no motivation to continue. And then we end up seeing them in our adult situation. We see it over and over and over where these children who are just as involved, we're just waiting for them to go to adult prisons. And we need to change that. Yeah, love that. And uh, well said, Tony Loudon, thank you so much for joining us on What I Want to Know. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for all that you do. And it was a pleasure to be in here. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.